Hey everybody, is this thing working? Is this on? Someone has to confirm, as always, my existence. To observe that I exist, and then I know that I exist. Uh, Nightbot, I'm back from my trip. I'm not going to go anywhere for a couple of weeks. Oh, Nightbot. There we go. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm back from Australia. Uh, and it was awesome. Check it out. Star Stuff 2, Festival of Space, Science, and Astronomy, Australia, 2018. Uh, that was fun. So for anyone who doesn't know why I haven't been here for three weeks, I went to Australia to speak at the Star Stuff 2 convention in australia with a bunch of other cool people um man i uh alan duffy and uh jeff notkin from meteorite men and amy sure titel and a whole bunch of other people which was awesome um we were in uh, byron bay australia which is on the east coast of australia just south of brisbane brisbane and uh it was awesome i really enjoyed myself what a great country i it, it felt like Canada, but it was tropical. It was super weird to be there. Um, but I really enjoyed myself. And then uh, Carla and I went, <clears throat> we rented a motorhome and uh, traveled around Australia for about uh, two more weeks. And so we went north from Brisbane up to the jungles in search of insects, which of course is what Carla likes to do. And we found lots of wildlife, birds, uh, platypus, kangaroo. It was awesome. We had a great time. So, and then, but the flight there and the flight back sucked, like 14-hour flights, which is not fun. But now back and uh, ready to tackle your questions. We're just, we're just queuing up the summer lineup of, uh, of guests that we're going to have. But the one that uh, we have queued up next week, maybe Nancy can confirm, is uh, going to be Brad Peterson, who is the principal investigator of the Louvoir telescope. So I know that you all are, are super excited about Louvoir, the large ultraviolet infrared optical observatory. And so let's just find out the details right from the person who's in charge of the project. So that's going to happen. And then there's going to be a bunch of other people showing up over the course of the summer and into the fall. Can we get Elon Musk? Invite him. I've mentioned this in the past. Uh, if you want to be a, a an executive producer of of our shows, all you got to do is join the weekly Space Hangout crew. Go to wshcrew.space, and they will teach you how to. They'll give you all the templates and teach you how to be my executive producer, and then you can help set up guests that you want. Good luck. Reverb, huh? Are other people getting reverb as well, or is it just because I don't have? Hmm. Let me know if anyone's getting uh, reverb as well, because that would suck. All right. So, but yeah, Elon Musk would be great. I'd love to have Elon Musk. Um, there you go. Uh, Joe Rogan. Sure. That'd be great. Uh, I I notice you. Uh, Senpai notices you, but I can't read your name, which is... So, I don't know. how I can't call you by name. So, there you go. Uh, no one else is getting reverb. Whew, that was good. I, every time I, I don't run any kind of live streaming software for like three weeks, everything breaks. I'm surprised I didn't have to update everything. Uh, Space TV, Seth, Seth Shostak. We've interviewed him on the Weekly Space Hangout. 
several times, I think. So check that out. I'm sure we'll get him back. Uh, anyway, so let's go on. Let's let's chat. Uh, just a couple of new pieces of information. If you want to know what my talk was about, it was kind of a mix between my rise of the super telescopes and the that new observation about that baby planet that was seen, as well as the super space telescopes that are coming. So it was, I talked about Louvoir and the very large telescope and the techniques and coronagraphs and things like that. And then I did a question show. And I hope that Dylan is going to make one of those available. That would be pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Voyacat17. Hey, Fraser, do you have a project with What the Math Guy, Anton Petrov? I don't, but he's awesome. So if you haven't checked him out, go to, um, yeah, search for Anton Petrov. And he does these great simulations with Universe Sandbox and things like that. I really like his, his work. I would love to chat with him. Matt O'Dowd, uh, we talked. He's a busy guy, and it's pretty hard to kind of coordinate our schedules, but at some point, we'd love to. All right, let's take on some questions. So SS2 Lannister, uh, since everywhere you look in space, you are looking into the past, the farthest thing that we can see is the CMB. Is there any way that we can see farther back in time, further back in time than the CMB? Right. So, of course, the CMB is the cosmic microwave background. This is this uh, this first light that was released from the universe at the moment that it had cooled down to the point that that it was no longer opaque and light could escape. And that was about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And obviously, there was 380,000 years of universe before that point. So how can you see beyond the point where light first happened? And the answer is going to come from gravitational waves because gravitational waves were happening in theory right from the beginning of the universe shortly after the big bang and so one of the ideas there's sort of two parts to this one is this search for uh, primordial waves primordial gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background and sort of the the afterglows of that and this was this whole bicep 2 experiment that ended up being inconclusive but now people are searching for it again uh, and that's sort of one way, and that would have sort of helped prove inflation. But the other way is to look for these these gravitational waves directly. And two missions coming up are going to be able to do that in theory. The first one is called LISA, the Large Interferometry Space... I forget. Someone will write it down. Um, so LISA is going to be a a group of three spacecraft flying in formation in space, and they're going to act like the gravitational wave sensors that are here on Earth, but with incredibly more sensitivity, and maybe will be capable of seeing these, these gravitational waves. But then their idea is to go further than that and actually create, I think, six, maybe even 12 of these spacecraft flying in formation. And they're calling that the Big Bang Observatory. And the hope with that is that, yes, indeed, it will be able to see the gravitational waves. And what's great about the gravitational wave observatories is that you can see things that are obscured in electromagnetic radiation, like what happened before the cosmic microwave background. No way to see into the event horizons of black holes, unfortunately, but but still, we may very well be able to then test all these different ideas about inflation and things like that. So I would say one of the missions that I'm most excited about, but it's still into the 2030s, is this LISA. Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. There you go. And Ong. Does someone ask about what the universe is expanding into? I'm getting really good at answering this question. Um, uh, let's see. Let me go back to it here. 
there you go. Where is the universe expanding into any theories? And I, I, I like this question because now I feel like I've got a really good set of analogies to go with it. So imagine a grid in three dimensions that goes on forever, right? It's infinite. And then that grid expands so that all of the points in that grid are now farther away from each other than they were before. The grid is less dense, right? But it goes on forever. So what is that expanding into? It's just getting less dense, but it's not expanding into anything. And so one of the possibilities is that the universe is infinite. And so imagine that grid and it's expanding, right? It doesn't make sense to say, and yet you could go to any point on that grid, look at any of the other corners on that grid, and you would see everything moving away from you. And the farther away they were, the faster they would be moving away from you as this grid was expanding, as everything was getting less dense. But it's not like it's this, it was this single little point that then exploded and expanded. It's just this grid that maybe always existed and just went on forever. Now, that's one of the possibilities, right? The other possibility is that the universe is finite. And so then imagine, but, it, but it's still a grid, but now the grid wraps. So imagine a 3D game of asteroids. And so you move on one part of the grid and you return on the other side and you move up on the, on the and you return on the bottom and you go sideways and you come up from the other side. Either way, you just get this expansion. And so to say, call it a big bang is actually not really that, uh, it's not a very accurate way to describe it. And it really sort of causes people to always imagine explosions as opposed to just this ongoing expansion. So did that help? Was that the one? Is that the one that puts it into your brain? So now you can understand to, to say like, what is the universe expanding into is a question that, that doesn't really make sense because if it goes on forever, then it's forever, right? And if it is finite, but it wraps, then even that doesn't make sense because you can never kind of make your way out of it. And to imagine something of, of that is, you know, that is something that goes on forever is like the surface of say the earth. You can walk around the surface of the earth in any direction and return to your starting point and just do that again and again and again. Now, the earth could be finite in size and yet you could continue just walking in, in any direction. So that is sort of the way that I like to explain that to people. Uh, someone asked me, oh, there you go. Hotman83, do you have a formal education in science or be self-taught? My formal education is in computer science. I went to engineering at University of British Columbia and then I went into computer science here on Vancouver Island and then worked for a bunch of uh, tech companies. But I went into astronomy journalism about 20 years ago and have been reporting on space and astronomy news ever since. Uh, about 10 years ago, I started doing the Astronomy Cast podcast with Dr. Pamela Gay, who's a PhD astrophysicist. So no, I am not an astronomer. I am a super fan and have been reporting on this stuff for 20 years and have seen every, and so, you know, if you needed me to calculate the uh, relativity, the time dilation, uh, I might have a hard time doing that. Although we did do time dilation when I was in physics, but no, my formal education is computer science and all of my work is self-taught. And my hope is, you know, that the professional astronomers out there who watch what I do feel like I'm doing, I'm explaining the work that they're doing and giving them justice without saying it wrong. Because they're busy, right? They're researching while I am, my job is to help explain what they're doing. And the hope is that they're, we're going to uh, piece this together. Volvacat17, wow, 100 rubles, I think. Thank you so much. 
I, I don't know if that's a lot or a little, um, but thank you. Uh, so people spread around the galaxy and then forget each other, but the boom warp drive arrives. We get the Star Trek humanoid races scenario. Now, are you talking about how we're going to get on our spaceships and we're going to move to various locations and find all of these other races that look like human beings or that we are going to have uh, sort of explored the solar, the universe, the Milky Way with our warp drives and then civilizations are going to get a cut off and they're not going to be able to contact each other and then we're all going to look strangely similar. I mean, we don't know what aliens are going to, alien civilizations are going to look like. They're, we can make assumptions based on all the different life forms and especially the way you get convergent evolution here on Earth, how you can get, um, uh, you know, how you can get uh, an alien civilization or you can have like, like eyesight, right, can form multiple times. You can have uh, eyes come, you know, separately a whole bunch of different times and you get this same kind of evolution. And so you could imagine alien races in other worlds, they're going to have something similar. Uh, what about your eyebrows? Yeah, my eyebrows are like in the middle and they're like blonde out on the outsides. I don't know. My beard is kind of patchy. It's weird. It's always been that way. Uh, off. what is your favorite aspect of your work? What drives your passion through the hard times and keeps you going even when you don't want to? Man, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I really enjoy my work and and I think you know that you found what you love when you're willing to do something that's really crappy, really sort of monotonous over and over and over again, and you're still having a great time. So I do a lot of things which a lot of people would think was kind of ridiculous, like I answer all the comments on my YouTube, or I... Um, I do personalized videos for the people who sign up for my newsletter, uh, which a lot of people have probably received and things like that. And uh, it's when it's all part of a larger purpose, when you've sort of found what you love, you're educating the people, you, people are getting a lot of value what you're doing, it all just sort of fuels the fire and it doesn't really feel like, like hard work. The stuff that really is hard is when things are stressful, where you, um, uh, where you don't know what the outcome is gonna be. And that's the thing that is the hardest on me. Uh, I fall apart when, uh, when the outcome is unknown and where my success is in the hands of someone else, right? Like if, man, like if I got a, uh, a TV deal, let's imagine I, I, you know, I was asked to do Cosmos after this next season from Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and at any point I could get a phone call saying, you've been canceled and I put in all this work. That would just be really hard for me. And it's part of maybe why I'm such a control freak is that I like to kind of do everything on my own or at least be in charge of the team as we do things because I don't like not having things that are that I directly impact for the outcome. I know that sounds super weird, uh, but that's sort of the way I see the world. So uh, I would rather um, turn down. I've turned down a couple of TV shows just because it just like I don't like the way it's set up. And I, I actually really enjoy this platform. I enjoy YouTube so much. I really feel like this medium where 
we can create content. You can suggest ideas. I can make you use, be the filter to take the knowledge that I've gained to create the kind of thing that I think you want to see that we can have a conversation back and forth. It's the best. And I can't imagine any other medium that would be as entertaining for me as a creator than this. Now, obviously there's a sense of scale. Obviously there's a sense of budget, you know, uh, would be great to get a, a deal with Netflix, but I've actually thought about that, right? Like, like if I got a deal with Netflix, I, I don't know if I would want to do it. Or if I got a YouTube red show, uh, I don't know if I would want to do it. What, I mean, I guess more graphics, right? But like the writing would kind of be the same, right? Maybe some better music, uh, better camera. Um, so I feel like we have gotten the heart of what I like the best as far as we can get it with the budget that we have. Uh, but it's, I don't know whether I, another medium like that would be as much fun. That's my feeling. Um, Arjun is asking like, have you thought about how the universe works? Uh, same thing, right? Like, uh, I would rather do my own thing, right? It's not that hard. Well, I mean, it is hard, but it's, I would rather, sit down, write a script, shoot an episode. Chad does amazing editing work. We're, we're a, we have a great time working together and we produce a show that can be 15 minutes, 20 minutes long. Like that. That's, I produce, or we, you know, Chad and I produce the equivalent of, what are we now? 360 episodes of the guide to space, each one say five to 15 minutes long. Like that's seasons and seasons of television shows, not to mention the question shows, not to mention the live shows, not to mention astronomy cast, weekly space hangout. I need no friction to be able to do this kind of stuff. And I understand that there's sort of these distribution platforms that maybe can take it to a wider audience, but I really feel like everything is pushing towards this towards this model as opposed to the old school model. I mean, there's still going to be the Kardashians, right? And they're going to have 10 million viewers on, on YouTube and whatever. But I think the future is going to be smaller groups creating the content for the exact audience of what they want to do. And I feel like I'm perfectly positioned to grow as, as this goes. And it's definitely sharpened my skills. I feel like, you know, just doing these live events, right? You think that you're watching, my show and I'm here to do a show for you. But the reality is, is that you're here to sharpen me, right? To tell, to, to ask me the questions that I wouldn't have thought of to, for me to think through every possible version, to explain things, to make mistakes publicly all the time, and then have that, um, called out so that I may fix it for next time. And it just makes me a stronger and better and better science communicator. And I feel like I'm just being, I don't know, molded into this weapon of science explainery. So, all right. Uh, Zetrex, what do you think is the future for quantum computers? Uh, so <laughs> I've seen a quantum computer. Um, I was down, I got to participate in this thing called uh, SciFu, which was held at the Google campus about three or four years ago, uh, I guess, and you, you get the call from the SciFu people and you get to come down and they put you up and you get to hang out at Google all day. And it's sort of done with the folks at NASA Ames and NASA and Google had just bought a quantum computer and it was great. I got to sit in the presentation where they did this um, presentation of, of what they had bought, this D-wave quantum computer. And the conclusion that they had made was 
we're pretty sure it's a quantum computer. And and now here we are. I think the latest was someone had done 18 qubits, had been able to entangle 18 separate bits. Quantum computers are pretty amazing and are for a certain kind of problem, the ones where you need to explore all possibilities simultaneously, they're amazing. And we're just getting started. I mean, just again, imagine, right? It was one, and then it was two, and then it was four, and then it was eight, and then it was 16, and then it was 60, then it's going to be 64. And eventually you're going to have gigabit qubits and the kinds of calculations that it's going to do is going to be pretty astonishing. So I can't wait to see what happens. I'm a little nervous to see what happens with that kind of power, but Andrew Singleton, I wish I could share your confidence, but YouTube has, from my perspective, continually refined and retuned their algorithms to make smaller channels less able to succeed than before. All right, so here's the thing that you need to understand. YouTube doesn't owe you anything, right? YouTube is free. It's this free platform where they will go and they will host your videos and they will serve them up to who, as many people want to watch it and you don't have to pay a penny. And what would have cost me tens of thousands of dollars years ago, I can now get for free. The fact that people can discover my content on YouTube is a bonus, but at no point am I ever in any way reliant or even feel entitled to anything that YouTube is able to give me from a traffic standpoint. Uh, there are lots of other places to get traffic. You can advertise directly. You can, um, I, this is why I run my email newsletter, right? Is that I know that at some point down the road, something's going to happen from YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or one of these platforms, and they're going to pull out the rug from under me. And I will have a group of people on my email newsletter who are receiving this information directly. So if you think that YouTube owes you anything, if Facebook owes you anything as a creator, you're, it's crazy, right? <laughs> they, they're only thinking about their own business model and how they can continue that forward. And if supporting small creators works for them, then they'll do it. And if it doesn't, then they won't. If they're going to do big deals with Conan O'Brien and, and things like that, then they're going to do that. So I'm not in any way under any illusion. Every person that YouTube helps discover uh, is awesome. And, and, and if they decide that I won't find anyone else, I'm still going to use it for its free video hosting. So, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that people are, they ever expect that one of these platforms is going to help them out in, in any way, shape or form. Um, anything, YouTube has helped me tremendously. Right. And, and I also know that when they stop helping me, no hard feelings. Uh, Damien Reloaded says that Scott and Cody are talking about collaborating on calculating distances to space bodies using parallax. Maybe you could help them. That sounds awesome. Yeah, totally. And Tim Bargain says, I disagree with the assessment of YouTube's algorithm. I watch plenty of smaller science channels and YouTube keeps trying to show me smaller channels that I haven't heard of. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Uh, and I know they've got a new explore tab that they're working on, so we'll see. Uh, <laughs> Someone just got banned. I was about to answer the question from Abdullah. He asked if I was a virgin. I have two children, 16 and 14, so you do the math. Ben Appleby, do you think in the future NASA will make a reusable version of SLS to complete with, compete with the BFR? I do not think that they will make something that's going to compete with the BFR. Uh, 
the BFR is such a, I mean, I hate to use this term, a quantum leap, because quantum leap is actually very small, uh, is a dramatic step, a giant leap for mankind uh, in technology above what the SLS is going to do. The SLS is about raw power to launch as much as humanly possible into space. It'll launch at its final version, what, 170 tons? Uh, it's crazy. While the BFR is all about launching as much as you can for the cheapest price possible. You know, it may be launching 150 tons or 250 in, in its reusable mode, and it's going to be doing it, it's going to be the cheapest rocket that, that SpaceX has ever launched. It's going to bring the launch cost down to almost nothing. Mark my words, right? When the BFR is flying, you are going to see so many other rocket platforms just vaporize, right? They're no longer going to make any sense when that thing actually goes for the price that they're that they're planning. Uh, and NASA, I'm sure, would be glad to buy flights on the BFR as much as they can, because right now, why would they spend billions of dollars developing their own launch system when they could just spend you know, less than $100 million to get a launch on, on a BFR. The thing is that Elon Musk's plans are plans and his timelines are flexible. And it does not make sense to wait for SpaceX to fulfill what they say they're going to do. So I think it makes a ton more sense to just continue on. And then if the BFR arrives, then you scrap SLS and move to the BFR. Uh, Arjun, are there any smaller rocket companies that you're excited about? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when I was in Australia, I got a chance to meet with one of these smaller rocket companies, and it's a pretty neat idea. They've got this hybrid rocket system that uses environmentally sustainable uh, rocket fuel. It's going to be launching out of Australia. There's a whole market of these small launch providers. And if you do get that, where these big launch providers are all making way for the BFR, you know, there's still going to be this gigantic uh, market for these small launch providers that are going to be able to launch a 1000 kilogram payload or a 100 kilogram payload. There's going to be a ton of need for that whole other launch market. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that as well. And I think you're going to get these two sides. You're going to get these big reusable rockets like BFR. If you want to go where the tanker is going, then hop on board. But if you want your own small payload that's going for its own specific destination, then you can go with one of these smaller launch providers. Death Roll 201, when do you think that we will be able to go faster than light travel or something equivalent? Uh, maybe never. Sorry. The laws of physics, currently as we understand it, uh, pre prevent you from being able to go faster than the speed of light. So then the question is like, when will my dreams all come true? When will that science fiction, when will the stories told to me in science fiction come true? And, and the answer is sometimes they do, right? Star Trek communicators and and transparent aluminum and things like that, and sometimes they don't, like anti-gravity and and faster than light travel and stargates, right? Where's my stargate? Uh, and hopefully some new breakthrough is going to come through, and people will understand the laws of physics, and it's going to uh, change what we know and allow faster than light travel. But you have got to come to grips emotionally with the possibility that we will never be able to travel faster than the speed of light. Just like, just, just say that, just say those words and just like feel it. And then, and then you'll, you know, be able to move forward and get excited about the technologies that are getting worked on right now. 
like air-breathing ion engines and uh, power from space and, uh, man, artificial gravity through rotating space stations and solar sails and interstellar solar sails and all kinds of good stuff. Philip Shalabi, that's what I was saying. Transparent aluminum already exists, and so do communicators and things like that. In fact, they came a lot quicker. And look at the power of the computers, right? The computers that you have in Star Trek are hilarious compared to uh, what is in uh, reality. Orlando St. Sebastian, is that the new t-shirt you picked up on Australia? Yeah, Star Stuff 2. I was in, and my name is on the back. There you go. Me and all the other people that were there. So, uh, SZ David Hun, when will we run out of CMB or will the oldest time that we can see change is our furthest photon that will reach us? We have already run out of CMB. The, the CMB is that time that's 380,000 uh, years after the Big Bang and that is the time it all was released. So there will not be any more. Now, as the universe expands, every year that goes on, we get to see one more light year's worth of CMB. And so imagine what will happen in the far, far future, billions and billions of years from now, then you'll get billions more universe to look at. But for now, uh, the CMB is, is the final point that you can see in the universe in the electromagnetic spectrum. But we talked about that earlier. Uh, Memo Red Spectrum. Amy is the best. Yeah, I got to spend uh, quite a bit of time hanging with Amy Shearer title. And Jeff Notkin from Meteorite Man, who is just the greatest guy. Uh, if you've watched Meteorite Man and if you wondered if, like, is he really like that? What, what an amazing guy. I was, uh, uh, it was a real treat to hang out with him and sort of hear his philosophy on searching for meteorites. I want to do it now. <laughs> I want to go and find some meteorites. So uh, there we go. Uh, Vovacat17, you totally missed my super chat. I apologize. Re-put it in, and then I will uh, notice it. Although I, you know, I, I, I wanted, I, I did a super chat for you, and I want to share with all of the other people as well. Uh, it's important for everybody to get a chance to ask questions. Corey Kearney, uh, when does your opinion as a science commuter gain credibility with the guys that do the math in a big picture sense? Are you saying like when do the people who do the math respect my ability as a science communicator? That's a good question. I think for some people, they will never respect my ability as a science communicator because I don't have a PhD in astrophysics or whatever. Uh, and yet others, I think, feel like I do a pretty reasonable job of explaining the science and I don't make a lot of mistakes and help them get the word out. Uh, you know, that's what the media is for, right? Uh, does, uh, I don't know, the anchor of some news show or a journalist working on a business program, when do they get the respect? You know, when they do a good job of explaining what's going on, I guess. And so my hope is that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm always trying to get better. I'm always trying to learn more. I read research papers and journals. I interview experts and bit by bit, all of these little pieces of knowledge drop into my brain and I'm able to explain them. I hope, uh, be interesting to see, uh, you know, I'm, if you see somebody who doesn't think that I'm doing a good job, uh, then let me know and I'll try and do a better job. All right. Volvocat, you said, is there a valid scenario in which immediately killing the aliens we encounter is the best option? Uh, that was my other super chat, man. Oh, I don't, yeah. Should we, should we immediately destroy all? No, we shouldn't immediately destroy all aliens. Now, if, 
all because I mean this is idea like the dark forest theory right the the uh, the three body problem which is a great series of books but I actually don't like their rationale for the Fermi paradox which is that aliens stay quiet so that other aliens don't find them and kill them because they want to prevent future threats, right? And this is his idea of the Berserkers, which was written by Paul Anderson. And so you send these self-replicating robot probes to world after world. They search for life. If they find life, they kill it. And that way, when you, when your alien civilization or when your civilization finally gets to the point where it can colonize those worlds, they're conveniently empty. Um, so that is an awful idea, and I really hope it's not true. And it seems like a legit strategy that some really awful aliens might go through to prevent any future um, competitors. But I definitely wouldn't want to be a berserker. That would suck. That would be the the absolute opposite reason to explore the universe. But of course, if all you run into are hostile aliens that want to kill you, then you're going to have to defend yourself. So I don't know. But I hope we could all just get along. Pedro Benedito, my Scott Manley's cousin. No, I'm not. Uh, nor am I Phil Plate's cousin, nor am I Paul Matt. Just because just people don't have any hair doesn't mean they're related. Most of us, there's a lot of men who don't have hair anymore. Uh, look at your grandfather, no, your, your, yeah, your grandfather on your mother's side, and that'll tell you if you're going to have, uh, go bald or not. Hit me in my mid, late 20s, early 30s, so. Michael Manberg, Mikhail Manberg. Hey, Fraser, what space missions in the upcoming five years are you looking forward to the most? In the next five years? Okay, so I am definitely looking forward to the Parker Solar Probe, which is going to be launching in about a week. That is awesome, right? Sending a spacecraft closer to the sun. Oh, Fred Saberhagen, not Paul Anderson. Yeah, thank you, Fraser Henderson. Um, right, sorry. Uh, Parker Solar Probe, launching in a week. Amazing. Uh, closer to the sun than ever before. Uh, Curiosity's twin, the Mars 2020 rover, that's going to be going in, uh, obviously, about two more years. Very exciting uh, about that. Uh, I've, I'm, of course, super excited about the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. You said missions, but I'm going to include big telescopes. That's coming in 2021, and that is, of course, going to be this, this telescope that scans the entire sky every couple of days and just sees everything that happens. Uh, can't wait for that. Man, uh, OSIRIS-REx is going to be getting to the asteroid and potentially returning back a chunk. Uh, Hayabusa 2 is going to be returning a chunk from an asteroid. Um, I, I, uh, I, it's, hard, it's hard to pick. Like anything that makes it out into space. The BFR, we hope, is going to launch by 20... Well, actually, we should see the spaceship launch maybe next year or the year after that, depending on if, you know, if we're on Musk time or not. Uh, but actually starting to send spacecraft to Mars by 2022, 2024. That'd be amazing. Uh, so there you go. Martin Kamen, how can you read and answer questions at the same time? Well, if you see, I look down over on the side and I notice a question. Now, you putting those little question marks beside it makes my life a lot easier. And that is, I tend to go after the ones that have the big question marks. So a big thanks, of course, to the, to the WSH uh, crew friends who help put those questions in there. I won't notice a question otherwise. Well, I, sometimes I do. Um, 
Anon, should we scrap James Webb, make Hubble 2 with a four meter mirror, fit in available launch vehicles, iterate? A fraction of the James Webb budget would be the third generation already flying now, making real discoveries. Well, James Webb is built, it's done. Uh, now it needs a little more testing and it's gonna maybe, you know, cost a couple more billion dollars, but it's finished, but don't scrap it. You won't get that money back. You can't like take that money and like turn it into more telescopes. Are you like talking about like taking all of its individual mirrors and then turning them into more telescopes? I guess that would be possible, but no, no, please don't do that. But I do think there's a real valid question. And, and this is something that I've talked to astronomers about is, do you build gigantic telescopes like James Webb, which have all of these risks and all of this additional complexity? Or do you, um, launch more Hubbles, right? Hubble is overbooked all the time. If you had another Hubble, that would get overbooked. If you put three more Hubbles up, those would get booked. So uh, I think that, there you go, Shazam, nice one. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that that there's a real valid idea to doing that. Now, next week, I'm gonna talk to Brad with Louvoir, and we'll talk about the biggest telescope, right? 18 meter, 15 meter telescope, bigger than the biggest telescope on Earth, but launched into space. Yes, please but not if it can happen. But there's some really interesting space-based manufacturing methods that I'm really excited about. So I don't think we're gonna go through the James Webb problem again, that the next scale of really big uh, missions are going to be done, uh, probably constructed in space or some component of them. So we'll see what happens. All right, so Shazam52, just one question mark, please. Uh, would you take a job as a college professor in astronomy? No, I'm underqualified. I am a science journalist with a background in computer science. Just one question mark, man. That's all I'm saying. Um, let's see. Josh Greening, James Webb, why on the Ariane and not on the Falcon 9 or the Heavy? Um, the when the James Webb was designed and they were in the planning process, the Ariane 5 was the biggest, heaviest rocket that you could launch. It was the only one capable of launching the James Webb. And now, ironically, it's possible that they're going to shut down the Ariane 5 project because they're so getting so old. And maybe they can put it on an Ariane 6. They might keep one around just to launch. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a, it's kind of sad. Uh, it would totally launch on a Falcon Heavy, although I'm not sure if the fairing is big enough for James Webb. Maybe it is. Uh, but the Falcon Heavy didn't exist. Falcon Heavy's only launched once. And so the whole point of these missions is you try to lock down all of the variables as quickly as you can. Lock down the launch spacecraft, launch down the fairing size, and then build to this exact thing. So all of these decisions were made, and they're going to stay that way unless something really catastrophic happens. Uh, Fraser Henderson, have you been to Costa Rica before? Yeah, I was there two years ago, and I'm going to be going back in March for a uh, Astro Tours with Dr. Paul Sutter. Uh, my wife's been there, was there a year ago. It's great. I love Costa Rica. It's one of my favorite places to go. Uh, how come we have not been able to detect exomoons? How do I pronounce your name, by the way? Um, uh, exomoons. So exomoons have maybe been detected, but not in the way that you would think. Now, obviously, the reason is because they're very small and they're very hard to detect. And the way planets are detected, right, these two methods, there's the radio velocity method and there's the transit method. And in both cases, you know, it's really hard to detect the 
action of a moon. But there are absolutely scientists that are working on ways that they can. And one of the ways is using gravitational microlensing, where you have a star and you have another star pass in front of it. And that star has planets. And as it passes in front, those planets could have moons. And you may be able to detect that dip. And so there's a whole series of studies. And in fact, um, if you go to Cool Worlds, uh, the team that runs that are a lot of their work is focused on exomoons, and I will totally have them join me for some live event, and we can talk all about exomoons and and other discoveries in extrasolar planets. Um, so Anon is following up. Uh, by the time James Webb is likely to launch, it won't need to be folded anyway because we'll have bigger launch vehicles. So obsolete? Do you agree? No. I mean, again. Uh, all these decisions have been made. You don't just like change the launch provider and then try to fit it into the new fairing and all of the problems and you shake test it on the new fairing. No, no, no. It's just get it into space by any means necessary on the rocket. Even if you have to like tell the Ariane 5 people to just like wait up, just wait. It's coming. We'll launch it. Don't go anywhere. No. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Kipping. Li Cheng. Awesome. Thanks, Lee Cheng. Todd Larson, hey Fraser, what is the surface of brown dwarf star made of? Is it just hydrogen like our sun? Yeah, a brown dwarf is a failed star. So it's made of the same stuff as the sun, which is mostly hydrogen, 25% helium, trace amounts of other metals. Uh, it's the same stuff that Jupiter is made of, right? Jupiter is, is made of the same material as the sun. It's just a lot smaller and didn't have enough to create fusion. And a brown dwarf is right in between. It has more mass than Jupiter, less mass than a red dwarf star. It doesn't have enough mass to do proper fusion, but it could still do a kind of fusion, deuterium, deuterium fusing. Uh, now, of course, people ask, like, what would it take to turn Jupiter into a star? And all you'd have to do is smash another 78 Jupiters into Jupiter, and then you would get a star, the smallest possible star. But, but yeah, brown dwarfs are just made out of the same stuff, hydrogen and helium. Avanish Bardwaj, uh, if you know an asteroid is going to hit Earth that can wipe us out, what are some of the best options to survive? Uh, now, I did a whole two-part episode about this. I don't know if you saw that. One was how to detect killer asteroids and then how to defend against killer asteroids. And the answer is we don't know. Now, people have their guesses, but the reality is that we don't know what is going to be the best way to protect the Earth from an asteroid strike. And the only way to find out is to test all of the ideas. Let's fire up a missile and have it detonate nearby. Let's fire an impactor into an asteroid and see what impact that has. Let's paint it one color so that it changes its rotation and takes advantage of the YORP effect. Let's, uh, I've seen, let's try a gravity tractor where you move a heavy mass near the asteroid and try to pull it away with the, with the gravity. Let's Let's install um, a railgun on it and use that inertial mass to try and kick it in the opposite direction. There are a bunch of ideas to uh, move an asteroid, and until we actually go out and find one and start to test them, we're not going to know which one of these ways is going to be the best way. There's lots of ways that have been proposed, and the thing that matters most is just the amount of time that you have. The more years you have, the small changes add up to big changes in, in velocity and distance. Dr. Machine Work 1, would it be possible to relocate the ISS to a Mars orbit? Uh, 
everything is possible, but the question is, do you want to? It would be too expensive. The ISS is an enormous amount of mass down deep in the gravity well of, of the Earth. And to even move it out to the moon, for example, would cost a tremendous amount of fuel, spacecraft after spacecraft going up to try and boost it to, to finally get it to the moon, to then get it into an escape velocity that could go to Mars. And then the other thing is that it's just, it's really not equipped to go anywhere beyond low Earth orbit. It doesn't have the kind of shielding that you would want out outside of the Earth's protective magnetosphere. And the, and the reality is it's getting kind of old. Uh, the, you know, parts of it are gonna start running down it's not the right machine for the job. When it finally is done, they're going to let it deorbit, and that'll be that for the International Space Station. And they'll launch something new. Uh, Ilya, Rostambegi, are Jupiter and Saturn made of the same material? Yeah, so Saturn is the same stuff as Jupiter, uh, but smaller, less. Now, uh, Uranus and Neptune are made of different things. They're called ice planets and so they're actually made of things like ammonia and methane and hydrogen and helium and water and all kinds of other things as well um, but but the two gas giant worlds are the same thing as the sun fraser henderson saying much depends on the nature of the asteroid to be deflected many asteroids are just flying gravel and it's a great point right different asteroids are going to require different responses one that's a solid chunk of metal is going to be different from one that is a rock, which is different from a rubble pile, which is different from a comet. Each one of these are going to be uh, requiring a different strategy. And until we find out and we test, we won't know. Uh, I don't think it really makes sense to definitely don't want to wait until the last minute and then send Bruce Willis. You want to go soon and you want to just muck with asteroids and just play with them until you figure out how they work, where they move, what moves them the best. And we've got our technique. And then by all means, find all the potentially dangerous asteroids and start shifting them into better places, mine them to nothing so they can't cause us a problem and they have to pay for it. So I think there's lots of great ways that we can get on top of that the asteroid mining could be the way that we protect the earth and asteroid mining is um coming quickly there's going to be a lot of really interesting missions uh private companies that are doing space mining so i think we're going to see that come quickly and the second someone makes a profit on space mining then it's going to be a whole new gold rush Craig Morgan, what do you think of the Gateway Space Station proposal? I did an episode on the Deep Space Gateway, and this is this is what NASA is planning as its next step after the International Space Station, and this is going to be a smaller space station that's going to be in a cislunar orbit. And the, I think the idea is a really good one, right? Like the problem with the International Space Station is that it just goes around and around the Earth, and nobody has been any farther than low earth orbit since the apollo era and it's time to go back it's time to go deeper and i am really of the opinion that really every mission that you do should push the capabilities one step further uh, learn to survive at a higher altitude learn to dock with an asteroid learn to extract materials from space etc and so the deep space gateway is a uh, interesting uh, next step Zitrix, are the questions that Fraser's seeing being manually filtered only by my brain? 
So there are some moderators who are deleting people who are being trolls and, uh, and are using too many question marks. <laughs> but apart from that, no, uh, I just look at the questions and I pick ones that uh, strike my fancy. Uh, again, let's just keep it fast, man. All right. Whoa. Roby Struff, uh, why is the universe expanding like an elegant bucket and not like a normal circular round explosion? I covered that earlier in this show, so you should watch that. Kirillyov, have you read Our Mathematical Universe by Max Tegmark? I have not. I've had a lot of people say that I should read Max Tegmark, and the reality is, is that I am unequipped to uh, have any opinion about Max Tegmark, right? Um, I am a journalist. I am a computer scientist, not a physicist, and those questioning various fundamental models of physics is beyond my pay grade. And that's why I have a bunch of super friends, right? I reach out to Dr. Paul Sutter or Dr. Pamela Gay or Dr. Ethan Siegel or, you know, Dr. 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 I talk to physicists and their opinion generally is it's interesting, but he needs to make predictions that can be proven by observations. And when he does, then that will become potentially a, a theory that is accepted. So make predictions. People need to make observations. That's just how science works. Uh, Jason G. So can you dark about my Darl matter hypothesis? So again, that's, you know, I am not the person who's equipped to talk about a dark matter hypothesis, although I'm about to do an, an episode all about dark matter hypotheses. So, uh, but the, I'm going to do an episode probably next week that is just the state of the search for dark matter. And I actually just answered it in the latest question show that just went out today. And I sort of went on a rant about dark matter. So uh, enjoy. Oh, um, next week? No, David Brin. Right. So just speaking of guests, right, we've got um, Louvoir next week. And then David Brin, I think, is the week after that. Uh, acclaimed science fiction author David Brin is going to join me. So again and those were recommendations that people made someone said you should get david brin i'm like i can talk to david brin and invited him so he's going to be on uh, in august uh charles that is all you can still read it and don't tell us yes i i read them and sometimes i don't answer them uh Ilya rostambegi why do saturn and jupiter have different colors uh well they have different environments right um Saturn is smaller, less massive. It is farther from the sun than Jupiter. Uh, it has less of that, of those like huge um, cloud systems that are rotating in opposite directions on it, different amounts of energy in the overall atmospheric system, and also potentially different kinds of material in the upper cloud. So the upper atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn are different from the vast majority of the planet. Like once you get down deep in them, it's all hydrogen and helium, but they'll have this layer right at the surface of different lighter elements. And so it's the consistency of those. But also the the kind of camera that you use to take a picture of Saturn or Jupiter can change the color that you see. A lot of the pictures that you see of Jupiter and Saturn are actually done with infrared instruments on board some of these spacecraft as opposed to true color images. But, you know, you're looking at the upper atmosphere of these worlds and those can be of different uh, sort of different kinds of material. Uh, eight more minutes. Evolution Inc. You should invite Buzz Aldrin if he wants to. Uh, sure. Yeah. Buzz. Anytime. Again. You're asking me to invite people. 
join the Weekly Space Hangout crew. They will set you up as an executive producer of all of the shows that I do. You will, you will then have the tools you need to invite Buzz Aldrin, and he will ignore you. But still, you can do it. But anyone else that you want to have uh, join me here on the show uh, would be great. Uh, astronauts, you'd be amazed who you can reach out to and say, hey, I really love the space science that you're doing or that time you went astronauting. Can you, would you like to come and hang out with Fraser and, and answer questions live from his audience? And a lot of them will go, yeah, that sounds cool to me. Let's do it. And then they join. So go to the WSHcrew.space and they will hook you up. And uh, you will have never felt more powerful than being my executive producer. And that's, that's like literally the first title that you get. There's only two titles. There's executive producer and I don't know, participant. No, everyone, everyone, everyone has the same title, executive producer. <laughs> you might punch me though. Yeah, I, I mean, I got a million questions for Buzz Aldrin. Uh, like I have, I mean, obviously all the inspirational, like, oh my God, you walked on the moon. What was that like? Tell me again what it was like to walk on the moon. Oh my God, right? I want to have that conversation. But then also, clearly, there's more in-depth conversations to have about sort of the current state and what's going on with, with his media operations and, and so on. But it would be amazing to talk to any, any... I've talked to a lot of astronauts. I've interviewed a ton of them. And they are all amazing, right? They are all astronauts for a reason. Um, multiple advanced degrees, uh, test pilots, uh, just the... Great and, and also just great personalities to get along with. And uh, they're super fun to interview. So any any astronauts, if you want to come and invite an astronaut, you should totally do it. Uh, Spydrobite, have we done a collab with PBS Spacetime? No, I've talked to Matt a couple of times and we tried to coordinate one and it didn't really happen. Uh, but the idea is still in the works, so maybe we will. But uh, both of us are, are really busy and it's sort of hard to, I mean, their operation is pretty fancy with green screen and all of the cool graphics that they do so it might be tough to do a, a collab but we'll see i'd love to uh envahab in cologne are testing artificial gravity any news i have not heard of that uh link can you link <laughs> illusion Inc. you know that thing you did when you went to the cheese ball in the sky and you brought us some cheese back home can i interview you about that that'd be awesome uh Bouncy, <laughs> dear Buzz Aldrin, how is it like to use a potty in space? All right. Questions, questions. We got five more minutes. Uh, any plans for a Venus mission? Wah, wah. You know the answer to that question. Was that like a, a gimme to have me then go on to a rant? Fine, I accept. Uh, no, there's no plans to go uh, any more missions back to Venus. There was this these two missions that were shortlisted a little while ago, and now were put in into a cage match battle to the death, which is the the mission to go and retrieve a sample from a. Um, from a comet or to send a helicopter to titan you saw me do that collaboration with uh, tim dodd everyday astronaut obviously tim dodd mopped the floor with me because hel helicopter on titan but uh one of the other ideas was a mission back to venus and that was not pushed forward so right now there are no spacecraft at venus and there are no plans to send spacecraft to venus that i am aware of which is really sad because venus is really cool 
It is the other world in this solar system that is the same mass of Earth. If you could get rid of that stupid, toxic atmosphere, you would have another planet that we could exist on with the same kind of gravity. And there are these really cool ideas about sending uh, spacecraft into the upper atmosphere of Venus and having them float around and, and hang out. That would be amazing. Uh, so we should really have a mission back to Venus. There's so many places. There is no mission at Saturn, right? Cassini's dead a year ago. It's gone. There's nothing and there are no plans to go back to Saturn. No one's going anywhere near Uranus or Neptune. Uh, New Horizons is past Pluto and that's probably it for a while. Uh, there's a mission going to Mercury with the Bepi Colombo. There's all kinds of missions going to Mars. Uh, there's going to be a mission going to Europa, which is probably the place I would love people to go to. But no, so many places that we're just not going to in the solar system. Oh, man. <laughs> FIFO fast. Venus is where you send spacecraft to die. Exactly. Uh, is it FIFO? FIFO? And thanks for your support, FIFO. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, Venus is, is, an, is an awful place where I think I, I did an episode all about the photographs that the Soviets took from the surface of Venus. And I mean, just their resilience and willingness to just send spacecraft after spacecraft to their death until they finally realized how horrible the planet was, right? I mean, they, they just kept sending spacecraft and they kept dying because they didn't realize it was so bad. And then they just had to send another one. And oh, so maybe if we make it handles. And so the first ones just were able to send back how bad it is. And so yeah, no, Venus is a Venus is a nightmare, but also uh, a pretty exciting world and a place that I think more, but I can say that about all of them, right? All of the places in the solar system need more things exploring them. So that's, that's where that's what I support. Uh, cat, why doesn't SpaceX try to use a big inflatable bouncy castle cushion on the water to catch the fairing? Uh, because they're really hard to move. So the whole trick with Mr. Steven, which is the boat that SpaceX has got, it's got a great big net and they can move it underneath the fairing as it's coming down and catch it. And I'm, I'm assuming they've thought this one through. Uh, and this is going to be the way that they think they're going to catch these fairings. We'll see. Mr. Steve had a massive uh, net upgrade, and we'll see if it, if it does the trick. Um, all right. Well, I think we are reaching the end. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining me today. It was super fun, as always. The time just flies. Uh, remember, next week, uh, Brad Peterson, right? Next week, Brad Peterson. It's going to talk about Louvoir. So bring your Louvoir questions like when can we have a telescope that's bigger than any Earth-based telescope, but it's actually out in space, please? I'm going to ask versions of that question, of course. And come on, really? That'll be the other question that I'm going to ask. Uh, so that's going to be next week. Also, if you want to see like a second whole question show, um, I do uh, live streaming with Skylius Cares every week on Thursdays. Um, there's a whole lot of other cool stuff that's going on every week. Now, the Weekly Space Hangout and Astronomy Cast are on hiatus, but I plan to keep doing these shows all week, all summer long while I'm around. So, uh, again, thank you so much uh, for joining me for the live show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for all the questions. That was a lot of fun. And uh, probably new question show tomorrow or uh, Wednesday. So, all right. We will see you next week here.